Welcome to the Brian Nichols Show. I'm your host, Brian Nichols, and we are having another fun-filled episode here on the Brian Nichols Show, a part of the We Are Libertarians Network. As you know, I'm the associate editor over at the Libertarian Republic, and as always, you can follow me over on Twitter and on Facebook at the Nichols Liberty. And if you enjoyed today's show, please feel free to go over to our Patreon. Every little bit helps us support the message of liberty going forward. And also, please be sure to go ahead and uh, like and review on iTunes to help us, again, keep producing this content you enjoy. If it's the first time for you joining The Brian Nichols Show, well, first and foremost, welcome The Brian Nichols Show. We are the fastest-growing liberty podcast, reaching all those across the political spectrum. So as host, my goal is to present the news you care about in an objective manner with the goal to help educate, enlighten, and inform. Also, if you're interested today in one of our Don't Hurt People, Don't Take People stuff bumper stickers, send me an email at thebriannicholsshow at gmail.com for more details. And as I mentioned, we are off to another fun-filled episode today. I am yet again joined by another phenomenal guest, as has been the reoccurring theme here on The Brian Nichols Show, and today I am joined by, I, 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 I want to preface this conversation, um, kind of giving a, a preview into how we got to where we are today. So back a couple months ago, um, I was having a conversation with RedState.com's Kimberly Ross, and uh, during it we kind of discussed uh, the differences between uh, libertarians and conservatives as it pertains to uh, social issues, and one area that we kind of came to a conclusion at the end of the show was this uh, discussion and belief that the the whole discussion about um, the death penalty and how it's such a slippery slope as we really look at how we um, look at the pro-life issue. So for libertarians, conservatives, it's been something that's it's kind of been in, in the, the really the, the forefront of the greater pro-life, pro-life debate. So I received an email from a gentleman named John. And uh, John Crane, he is, um, I believe, the critical PR person over at, and correct me if I'm wrong, as I have her on the, the line here, Hannah, um, the uh, PR person for the Conservative Libertarian Youths Rejecting the Death Penalty. Um, it's the organization's the CCATDP, which is a mouthful, Conservatives Concerned About the Death Penalty. So with that, uh, he wanted to reach out and the the, the conservative, the CCA. TDP, that's going to be a mouthful, um, had a booth over at the Young Americans uh, for Liberty <clears throat> for Liberty National Convention, and uh, he wanted to have an opportunity to discuss this very real issue that it, uh, the pro-life movement is facing today. So I am joined today by uh, Hannah Cox. Now, Hannah Cox, let me do your bio really quick, Hannah, if you don't mind. She is the National Manager of Conservatives Concerned About the Death Penalty, uh, previously the Director of Outreach at the Beacon Center in Tennessee, a free market think tank, and prior to that, Director of Development for the Tennessee Firearms Association and Policy Advocate for the National Alliance on Mental Illness. So with that, Hannah Cox, welcome to The Brian Nichols Show. Thank you so much, Brian. I'm glad to be here. Wasn't that a mouthful of an intro? <laughs> it is a hard acronym, CCATDP. You got to get the ring going to it a little bit. Yeah, but, got a little uh, like, like, jive to it for sure. Yeah, people can also just go to conservativesconcern.org and find us that way easier. So either way. So Hannah, I mean, this is a very niche issue, obviously, to to be advocating for. And I think it, it's a phenomenal issue and a very necessary issue to discuss and it's not necessarily an issue that a lot of people are willing to plant their flag on the hill and say, this is the issue I'm standing for and the issue I'm going to discuss. So t- 
just to that, I have to ask first, how did this movement begin? How did this organization begin? And two, what was your um, your real uh, step into this movement that you're now going to be the national manager um, for the organization? Yeah, so the organization actually began some number of years ago, about six or seven years ago in Montana. Uh, it, it began very organically, just with a group of conservatives that were you know, staunch Republicans who really had an issue with the death penalty and felt that it did not align with their pro-life views. Uh, that did not did not honor the sanctity of life, and were very compelled to take action against it, and started working with Republican legislators in that state, and found that they had more support on the right than they realized. Um, so it actually was founded as an organization about five years ago, and I encountered the death penalty for the first time really shortly after this organization started. I was very active in conservative and liberty movement politics. I um, was an activist. I was starting to work uh, full-time in politics, and the death penalty was not something I'd really given tremendous thought to. I was very pro, um, just as a gut reaction. I thought that we had a great system. I thought that our Constitution was structured in such a way to ensure that people got just and file tra uh, trials, that they did not frequently make mistakes. You know, of course, I knew Occasionally, there were mistakes in the system, but I thought those were more of an anomaly. I, I truly believed in that uh, quote by one of our founding fathers that says, better a hundred guilty men go free than one innocent man perish. And so I, um, I, I was pro and I'd not thought much more deeply about it. When I was working at the National Alliance on Mental Illness, I was approached about helping uh, to work a bill that would be actually seeking an exclusion from the death penalty for people with severe mental illness. And I said, oh, I don't think I can do that. I'm very pro-death penalty. And they said, really? Like, aren't you for limited government? And I said, yes, but, you know, I think this is, I think this is an appropriate thing. And they said, well, have you, really, have you really looked into it? And I said, no, I haven't. I'll be honest. I've never researched the system. I'm not, you know, super up to speed on it, and I'll do that. So I started looking into it, and I was shocked at what I found. I really was. I think uh, we heard say, said often that you don't really have to even tell people your stance on the death penalty. You just have to start telling them the facts around it and the facts speak for themselves. So I um, I wouldn't say I changed my, night, my mind overnight, but I certainly uh, started you know moving down that pathway and, and paying closer attention to the system. I became convinced that we certainly needed an exclusion for people with severe mental illness due to their likelihood of making wrongful confessions, uh, to not understand the charges brought against them, to be be much more susceptible to police pressure, all of that increasing the chance that they uh, would be you know, a, a victim of a wrongful sentence or conviction. And then as I continued working around the system, I just became convinced that no matter how appropriate I thought the death penalty was in theory, it was absolutely not working in practice. So this leads to something I think a lot of people don't realize, and that is, you know, is it really an issue? Because people are going to look, I'm, I'm just going to give you the, the straw man argument I'm presenting here as, you know, let's say I'm a conservative listener. It's like, okay, there are bad people in the world. And some of these bad people do such heinous things that they deserve to, to have their rights taken away to the extent that in some cases, yes, it justifies the death penalty. So to those individuals who are, they're coming into this conversation with that mindset, to them, what, what do you say to help them kind of have this realization that you did? Sure. I, I th I'd say first and foremost, I'm not trying to argue with them about that. I think that I understand the desire for justice or the desire for vengeance. Um, I think that's a very human reaction to have. I think that's a normal 
um, thought process. And I think, you know, there are some truly heinous crimes out there that you can't help but have that gut reaction to. I think to some extent, I still do feel that way at times. But uh, thoughtful people have to step back and look at the system as a whole and then decide, is this really something we should be doing? And for conservatives or people on the right, what I would ask them is, you know, how do you trust a government that you don't trust in hardly any other facet to prop to properly function, to be effective and efficient, to then be efficient in this one area? It's just not going to happen. And when you start looking at the amount of innocence issues we've had come out around the death penalty, I think that's where people first and foremost start paying attention to the death penalty because it's staggering. We've had uh, 162 and counting exonerated from death row alone, many, many more exonerated um, for other crimes, and and it continues to, to increase. That's not a small number. We've only executed about 1,400 people since the death penalty was reinstated, so that works out to about one innocent person released for every 10 executed. Wow. I'm not willing to gamble with somebody's life, yeah. uh, and I think that are frequently talking about people who are innocent in the system when we're talking about the death penalty. And I think that's the part that's so scary. You, you just mentioned 162 people exonerated from from being on death row. Now, with those 162 people, were they were they exonerated to the point that their entire convictions were thrown out? That's correct. So that's wow. not counting people who were released over you know innocence issues or appeals processes. Those are people who were fully exonerated. That's amazing. So their records clean. Yes. That's terrifying, though, because that's 162 lives that could have been lost at the the hands of the state due to a false conviction. Exactly. And no telling how many more actually have been lost. Um, we'll never know if, if how many people have been actually executed who are innocent. And, of course, we know there are still innocent people on death row. You know, best estimates say that at least 4% are most likely innocent. But at the end of the day, uh, it's a gamble. We, we can never know for certain. And with death, you know, you can't get that right again. So, and I want to point out too, that a lot of people would say, well, these 162 exonerations are evidence of the system working. It's, they're not. These, these cases have not largely come from the appellate process. They've actually come from outside groups typically that are working on these cases pro bono and continuing to relook at evidence and, and re-examine um, things from the trial. So groups like the Innocence Project have actually largely been responsible for these people getting out. So I think it's also important to to cover this part of the, the discussion. It's not so much the death penalty or not, but the greater pro-life issue. Now, I know a lot of libertarians, they approach this because they, and I say a lot of libertarians, I say a great deal of libertarians who are already identifying as pro-life, um, they'll come into, if they're pro, uh, pro, uh, I guess, not pro-anti-abortion, if they're anti-abortion, um, they tend to be pro-life in anti-death penalty. So anti-abortion, anti-death penalty, because of the fact that you are using the state or you're using another individual's uh, actions to, to violate the right of another person's uh, you know, rights. And one is the unborn, the innocent life. The other is an individual who, as you've alluded to, they may have not committed a crime. Now, for those individuals um, who maybe are trying to approach this from a more conservative standpoint, where they're pro-life, they you know they're they're pro uh, they're they're pro uh, the born being born, not having their rights violated, anti-abortion, I guess is the better way to phrase that. Um, how do you help them? get to the point of looking at this issue and saying you if you're going to be pro-life it's good to be pro-life from beginning to end 
Sure. I think, you know, we often see a lot of people on the right struggling with that who are adamantly anti-abortion, but also adamantly pro-death penalty. And again, I, I kind of used to be one of them. So I understand where they're coming from. Um, and oftentimes the pushback I hear from people is they say, well, I'm pro-innocent life. I'm pro-innocent life. Um, we are talking about innocent life here. <laughs> We're talking about a lot of innocent lives that are caught up in this system. And I think that as a whole, if you value life and you think that, there, that life does have value and that there is a sanctity around life, then I think you have to be a bit more consistent and, and really be uh, on edge about the fact that your government might be killing innocent people. I, I think that should deeply bother people. Um, and I also I think one thing that helped my approach to the whole criminal justice um, movement really alter was a few years ago, I, I was talking to a victim's rights advocate. It was a woman who was actually a, a family member of a, of a murder victim, and she started this organization to help other victims' families. And she said to me, what changed her world was when she got into the prisons, and she realized that this narrative that she had in her head of, of victim and offender was not actually true. Most offenders are also victims themselves. Most people who commit these heinous crimes have had heinous crimes perpetrated against them as well. And when you start to realize that, and you start to really see the system for what it is, it becomes very apparent that you have these cycles of violence that continue to be perpetrated. Uh, and right now, our system is doing nothing to deter violence, and it's also doing nothing to put it into those cycles. I think the death penalty just creates more victims, whether they're innocent people who are having their lives taken or whether it's the family members um, of the people who are being executed. It, it continues to perpetrate trauma on people, and we know trauma leads to more violence. And so I think the whole system as a whole does not honor life. And, and when you start to see it uh, for what it is, that becomes pretty compelling now I'm, I have to be devil's advocate because that's my job as the host um, so this is this is the part where let's look at a truly um, definitive case where like we have video audio DNA evidence like it happened in front of a mass of people we, we, we know that someone did something absolutely heinous whether it's sexual assault rape um murder what have you and there's so much damning evidence against a person that i mean there's no real chance that it could be you know a, a case of being wrongfully accused or wrongfully convicted at that point i would see a lot of i would dare say even some libertarians you know looking at the belief of the non-aggression principle say well, listen, you know, that person violated another person's rights. Therefore, if there is a role for government or some other you know, third party in, in the, the private sector to take control of the situation, then that would probably be the, the situation. So to that, that, you know, obviously it's going to be the, the smallest of the smallest circumstances where we have all these definitive absolutes that are guaranteed. But what do we do in that kind of a situation? What do we do with those type of people who, you know, they're just more or less evil people? Mm -hmm. Well, I think I would say first and foremost, those kinds of cases are so, so, so few and far between. Oh, of course. Which is another <laughs> thing you'll find when you get into the system. I think uh, we call it the CSI effect when you start working around criminal justice policies that everybody thinks DNA is everywhere and everybody's got it. And everything's foolproof. <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Have you watched? Have you watched Superbad? <laughs> no. You haven't I'm watched not. Superbad? Okay, well, I, I can't spoil it, and I also can't really allude to the, the scene about... Well, more or less, it's just it's Bill Hader and Seth Rogen in the car as the two cops, and they're like, well, 
you know, the guy that punched you talking to McLovin, they're like, well, you know, you're not going to be able to find him because, uh, you know, there, there's not DNA everywhere. You know, I, when I, he's like, when I, before I was a cop, I thought there was semen on everything. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, for, for people who have watched the show, obviously it gets a little more graphic and detailed than that, but uh, I'll, I'll leave that at there. Just that maybe think of, you know, <laughs> that line in the movie. And that's, that's exactly right. People have been uh, led to believe that we just have this abundance of evidence and that in the modern era, you know, maybe these things used to happen before 2000, but now in this modern area, no, there is only DNA evidence in about five to 10% of cases. And on top of that, DNA evidence is not infallible. We have already seen multiple types of DNA evidence that were once taken as, you know, Bible since thrown out that are now considered junk science, including um, bite mark evidence, including microscopic hair analysis, uh, ballistic testing. All of these used to be taken at fact, uh, face value and, and now are not even admissible in court. So DNA is not quite that reliable. And of the um, exonerations that we've seen, um, it's been about 28% have had some sort of false evidence involved. So I think wow. that's something to really keep in mind. I that's don't think high. there is such a thing as a foolproof case. Maybe once in a blue moon you have that. But at the end of the day, you know, you can't pick and choose these cases of which gets this, which gets that. You have a system. It's set up as a system, and either you have this available or not. And it really comes down to one person's judgment whether or not a dissonance is pursued in any given area. It's up to the DA. And what we found, and one thing that I think is really upsetting about the death penalty system, is that it's really only a very small, concentrated number of counties whose DAs tend to uh, pursue death penalty cases. We found that uh, the majority of capital trials stem from only 2% of counties. And actually, of all exonerations that we've, or I'm sorry, all uh, executions that we've had since 1976, all of those people have come from only 15% of our counties. And so we're not talking about a system that says these are the worst, the worst crimes, and we're 100% sure they did it, and this is who gets the death penalty. No, it's much more uh, subjective and up to one person's opinion of whether or not they uh, are an aggressive DA whether they want to, and whether or not they want to pursue that. And typically what we see of who ends up on death row, it's poor people. It's people who can't mm -hmm. afford a good lawyer. They don't have adequate defense. Uh, the numbers behind that we can get into, but they're pretty staggering about the number of public defenders who have represented people on death rows who were then disbarred later on, uh, who were drinking in court. Who There was one case where a, a, a public defender showed up and actually fell asleep during the trial, oh and that God. was taken all the way up to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court said, you have a right to a lawyer. You don't have a right to an awake lawyer. So it's, it's pretty actually heinous what happens in our system because it just targets people who don't really have uh, the resources to defend themselves. Typically, we see a lot of people with severe mental illness caught up for reasons I mentioned earlier as well. Um, and I think that to me, that was another thing that helped me change my mind on the death penalty is I, I thought it was going to have the worst, the worst. When in reality, if you start looking at the number of serial killers who did not get the death penalty, it's kind of staggering. Jeffrey Dahmer didn't get the death penalty. BTK didn't get the death penalty. There was uh, a man who was implicated in 9-11 attack who did not get the death penalty. And so it's, it's not this system that is just in deciding, okay, you crossed the line. That's not what's happening here. So what is the alternative? So let's say we have these these terrible human beings, these evil human beings who may or may not have been wrongfully uh, uh, convicted. Let's just, just give this hypothetical. Um, mm -hmm. What's the answer then? What what does society do to, do to keep these people contained so they aren't harming somebody else? Is, is prison the answer? Is, is there an alternative to prison? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, the... 
there are so many solutions under the sun for this that it's, it's kind of hard to know where to begin. Of course, you know, the one thing that I think everybody feels a little bit better about when we're talking death penalty is, of course, life in prison without parole, which is still on the table if you get rid of the death penalty for people who are truly an ongoing threat to society. Um, and I do believe in that for a limited amount of cases. I will say, too, though, our system has become a warehouse for people with mental illness issues. So I would love to see more programs um, come about and, and start focusing on these things early on because someone doesn't typically enter the criminal justice system having committed a murder right out the gate. They typically have had many interactions with the criminal justice system for quite some time and are not getting the intervention and help that they need. So in my opinion, I would love to see some of the vast amount of resources we are spending to pursue death for a select few amount of people redirected to actually making sure our system is focused on restorative justice that actually nips crime in the bud and makes us safer and deters violence. And, and that would be my dream world. And there are all kinds of groups working across this country doing phenomenal, very innovative things in the criminal justice system right now, all the way from restructuring um, the funding for how prisons um, or, or parole or probation offices are funded so they're no longer funded based off just the number of people in them, but are instead uh, funded based off outcomes, like people um, getting jobs, getting clean from, from drug issues, getting mental health help, getting through educational programs, etc. I think those are fantastic. I think if you um, have those things in place up front, you actually see a drop in violence. And that's another thing that's so upsetting about the death penalty is in states that use the death penalty the most, which are southern states and then Texas and Oklahoma, uh, you still have very violent high crime rates. I mean, I live in Tennessee and Tennessee is consistently ranked as one of the most violent states in the country. Uh, so we don't actually see a drop in homicides. We don't see a drop in other forms of violent crime. And yet in northeastern states that very rarely use the death penalty, we have seen a drop. And I think that's because they've had the resources they need to actually focus on things that work. At the end of the day, our criminal justice system has been pursuing this tough on crime narrative that actually isn't tough on crime. It lets a lot of crime go and continues these cycles of violence. Um, and, and we haven't talked about the cost of the death penalty yet, but they're stark. They're, they're drastically higher than keeping someone in prison uh, for life without parole. Most of the costs are incurred at the trial level and cost about $2 million more per case uh, and about 24 to $30 million more per execution once you go through the whole thing. That's money that could really be used in other areas. And we've even seen reports from uh, chiefs of police that rank the death penalty as the least effective tool in their toolbox and that say they would much rather have this money to be used on programs that actually work. So I didn't even know that. So maybe you could elaborate a little bit more on that because I was always under the impression that, and you, you hear this from people who are like, let's say, for example, child molesters, you know, why am I wasting my money on, on keeping him in prison all these years? Just, you know, just put him in an electric chair and end it because it's cheaper and it'll get rid of this, this human debris. And I mean, that's just, that's always been promoted. I, I never really thought about that way. That's actually more expensive to, to, to put somebody to death than it is to keep them alive. For, so could you yeah. kind of elaborate and explain how that works? Sure. So like I said, the majority of the costs for a death penalty trial are uh, incurred at the trial level. And so the first way to understand it is when you have a capital trial, you actually have two trials. So you have a guilt and innocence phase and then you have a sentencing phase. Um, of course, these trials run much, much longer than your typical trials. I think it's about 
um, 1000 hours of salaried work per destinance versus a hundred hours for life without parole. Um, so when you think about what you're paying judges, what you're paying prosecutors, what you're paying public defenders, what you're paying for, uh, testimony, I think most people don't realize a lot of testimony. Um, those people can get very large sums of money to come give expert testimony on issues. Uh, how long you're paying to keep a jury up, um, how much DNA testing and lab work you're doing, all of that increases drastically in a capital trial, making it much, much more expensive. Um, and then on top of that, the cost of keeping someone on death row compared to keeping someone in a normal prison is also significantly higher. And that differs state to state somewhat. Uh, we don't always have the cost for each state because they don't want you to know a lot of the time, but where we <laughs> have gotten the cost, uh, so say California, the cost of confining one inmate to death row is $90,000 more a year than the cost of keeping someone in a maximum security prison. Wow. So drastically more expensive. And typically, at the end of the day, um, a lot of these people are not being executed for multiple reasons. One, um, because I think that we're seeing a real shift in public attitude. Uh, we're seeing a, a decrease in death sentences and in executions across the country and have been seeing that trend for quite some time. It's, uh, it's not as political politically popular as it used to be. I think secondly, um, because the appellate process does take a long time and, and thank God for that. When we've had 162 and counting people exo um, exonerated, it needs to take a long time and make sure that we're overturning every stone. Um, and then lastly, due to some of the issues we've been having with some of the drugs, um, most of these people end up spending life in prison anyways. So uh, it's, it's much more expensive to pursue a death sentence. And I think that you've got to think about this in terms of opportunity cost. So out of uh, 52,000 or so murders in 50 cities over the past 10 years, 51% of those did not result in an arrest. Uh, we also have a property crime rate of about one-fifth being cleared. And then I think, as most people are aware, we have a significant backlog in rape tests being tested, uh, tested uh, probably estimated in the hundreds of thousands at this point in this country. We're, again, we're not being tough on crime. This is stupid. We're letting the majority of people's offenders go. They they never get any kind of justice, any sort of vindication whatsoever. And those people are allowed to run free while we spend all of this money and time, you know, trying to make sure one person suffers. And I, it just doesn't make sense to me. And to kind of take a step forward in terms of the changing mindset. Um, so peek behind the curtain, folks. Uh, this is recorded here on August 2nd. So quite literally this morning, um, it came out that Pope Francis, who obviously is the uh, head of the Catholic Church, has has stated that death penalty, it's wrong in all cases, which has been a really big change in the way that, that the church is going to be uh, teaching um, how to approach this issue. And there's been a belief that it's going to really change the way that Catholic politicians, judges, and elected officials um, are going to approach this uh, because before the notion was, well, the church itself was not, it wasn't explicitly saying that it was opposed to capital punishment. So it was a way to, to kind of, you know, have their cake and eat it too. And here we are with the church now making this definitive stance um, saying that, like, really, there's, there's no reason to perform capital punishment, even in the worst offenses that this might have a big change on the overall um, stance on this issue going forward um, for those in government. So if you could, Hannah, what's, what's your perspective on this? And do you think it's going to have a, a, a substantive change? 
Yeah, I absolutely think it's a huge deal. And I, I think for the many people like myself who, who are Christians and who have, you know, for some time started to think that this did not align with their values, I think that it, it's great to see such a prominent leader come out and be vocal and, and, and change the, the church's teaching on this. So I, um, I think it's very encouraging for those of us who are already where we are on this issue. For others who are on the fence or who perhaps are like me, how I was a few years ago, and have just not looked that much into this, I hope that's a motivating factor for them to start digging a little deeper um, and look into this in more depth. And I also hope that it encourages religious leaders from other denominations to follow suit. Um, I think this aligns with the trend I was talking about earlier. We are seeing such an uptick in conservatives and Republicans and Christians changing their mind about this and really starting to rethink their stance on the death penalty. And I think that's uh, this action today is indicative of kind of the zeitgeist of the moment. And you really spoke about, and this kind of goes back to the entire outreach that John had when he first brought up the interest in, in possibly having you guys on my show, is this conservative libertarian alliance. And I think we're seeing this across the spectrum, um, not only with regards to this this pro-life issue, um, both anti-abortion and anti-death penalty, um, but also across policy, saying you know we, we send we seem to blend together seventy percent of the time on various issues, but then there's these these really key fundamental you know thirty percent things that we just cannot seem to to rectify because of our principled positions on them. And I think we're starting to see that that get broken down more and more to the point where we're saying, what can we do together to promote things in a manner that's really going to bring our our 70% coming together to actual policy change? And I dare say that we're seeing this as something that's taking place right now, specifically mentioning the, uh, the anti-death penalty uh, movement. Mm -hmm. I think you're absolutely right. And at the end of the day, conservatives and libertarians agree on so much more than they disagree on. And I think we need each other. Um, I think without that, you know, we lose the right. Uh, we don't have a lot of strong principles on the right without those two groups being the anchor. And I think the most important thing is that we agree on the basic principles of limited government. The government should not have vast amounts of power. It cannot be trusted with vast amounts of power. The individual needs to be able to steer its own course. And, and when we do let government have power, it needs to be small and it needs to have an extraordinary amount of accountability and transparency involved. And, and that's the only way to make sure that we are actually still running the government and it's not running us. And the criminal justice system is, is such a great example of how off the rails our government's gone, you know, not just in the death penalty issue, but across the board. It's fraught with really terrible issues and a lot of abuse. And I think that right now, especially with kind of the true crime wave and popularity that's going on, people are starting to pay attention. People who have never interacted with the criminal justice system, who've probably never known anyone in the criminal justice system, they're starting to hear about these cases where there, there was prosecutorial misconduct or where uh, someone was framed or where someone didn't get adequate representation. And, and I think they're recognizing that, you know, even if this person is guilty of sin, this is not how our country was set up to run. This is not how our criminal justice system was supposed to function. And we have to do something about that because it's, you know, I think easy to maybe write that off when you're not too close to it. But at the end of the day, this could happen to you. You know, it could be you or your family member that mm -hmm. gets sideways with law enforcement or somehow it's the wrong place, wrong time, and you get, you know, picked for a crime that you didn't commit. And I think that's really terrifying. Um, and I think that it should get more attention than it does. Oh, absolutely agree. And I, I mean, one thing too is that there are, like you said, there there are so many real life 
tangible examples of this. I mean, for example, the, the 162 people who were exonerated from death row, and that's 162 lives, that's 162 families, and the network of that 162 families is, is exponentially larger. So you think that's, I don't even want to put a number on it, how many, you know, thousands of people who look at this issue with such a personal stance. And I mean, there are organizations, obviously, like your organization, you are at uh, YAL, um, you know, I'm the, the chair here in Philadelphia for the America's Future Foundation, um, you know, that are trying to bring up these issues and more specifically, like you're, you're speaking of today, the anti, um, the anti-death penalty issue to, to really be truly pro-life and show the real cost of that. It's so, so important. I, I'm so thankful to have, you know, someone like you, Hannah, and for John to reach out to, to bring this up and to really try to get conservatives and republicans and i dare say even surpass that people on the left as well be they democrat liberal progressive socialist communist whoever they may be to say this is something that is really having a negative impact on our society and i think collectively as a as not only a, a country but also as the greater um human race we have to say this is something that that should not stand where you have someone being killed at the hand of an overarching government it's just it's not it's not moral. It's not principled. It's not right, and it violates the the most uh, you know the most uh, at risk minority, and that is the individual. Uh, so, I mean, with that, Hannah, thank you so much. Is there anything else that you really want to to leave my guests with? If you could, you know, give them one last hurrah for the CCATDP uh, <laughs> as the the national manager for the organization. Listen, you know, I think the best thing they can do for me is go to our website, conservativesconcern.org. We've covered a lot of the big issues, but there are so many more going on. And I think that uh, people will really have their eyes open if they just start reading what we've researched and, and produced. Uh, I'd love to get people involved. If people want to get active, we've got chapters all across the country that are getting really active and trying to push for repeal um, and educate others about their concerns. So please feel free to reach out through our website as well. I'd love to plug people in. So it's conservativesconcerned.com? Dot org. Dot org. See, that, that's why that's why uh, I have my, my guests who are smarter than me on, so they can correct me if I'm wrong. <laughs> um, and Hannah, for, for folks who are interested in you, obviously, you know, you are the national manager for the organization and you have an amazing um, sense of the issues. Where can people go ahead and follow you on social media so they can stay informed? Sure. So I'm at HannahCox7 on Twitter. Uh, I'm at Hannah D. Cox on Facebook, so they can look me up at either place there. I'm also a big fan of Instagram, people like that. So <laughs> I'm at Hannah Danielle underscore Cox six there. Um, and we, we post a lot about our events and, and stuff we're doing there as well. So I'd awesome. love to connect with people. Awesome. Listen, Hannah, I, I really do appreciate the time. Um, you know, we need more, more conversations like this going forward. Uh, thank you so much for, for taking the time to, to join me tonight. Um, and ladies and gentlemen, if, like Hannah said, if you enjoyed and you want to learn more about the organization, more about this issue, it's conservativesconcerned.org, not .com. And uh, as always, <laughs> if you want, guys, if you're interested in The Brian Nichols Show and you want to keep on having these kind of guests and these kind of conversations on, uh, please feel free to go over and, uh, and shoot us some support on Patreon at B Nichols Liberty. And, and please share today's episode with your friends and family. Uh, this is the type of episode that is going to be so important to help change minds because we're able to have a real discussion and show the real impact and cost 
of these very damaging policies. So with that, as always, follow me on Twitter, folks, uh, at B Nichols Liberty, also on Facebook at B Nichols Liberty. And uh, if you want to shoot me an email for any questions, comments, concerns, at the Brian Nichols Show at gmail.com. But for Hannah Cox, this is Brian Nichols signing off on the Brian Nichols Show. We'll see you next week. <laughs>